grab your pom-poms because we're going cheering today on Golden Girls Sports. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken... Continuity isn't exactly a hallmark on the Golden Girls. Whether you're watching an all-day marathon or binge-watching on Hulu or power-watching DVDs, you can see little details change from episode to episode. Dates don't always line up. Relatives and kids change in number and name. And Sophia's stories seem somewhat less than historically accurate from one to the other. And that's not even counting the different actors that have sometimes shared role. TV shows often have a Bible or a document that contains pertinent information like character traits, timelines, costume guidelines, and other stuff. The Golden Girls did not have a Bible. Producer Paul Witt once said, quote, Did we know exactly how many children each character had? I'm not sure we ever did. End quote. Writers Mark Cherry and Jimmy Wooten joined the staff later on in the show's run, after already watching as fans. According to Cherry, their encyclopedic knowledge of the show allowed them to act as de facto Bibles for other writers in order to keep everything straight, or at least mostly straight. Blanche might have had two different middle names, Marie in one episode and Elizabeth in another, but one thing seems to have remained constant throughout the show's entire run. She was a cheerleader, and she mentions this fact as often as she can. In three episodes already covered in this podcast, Blanche uses her experience on the cheer squad to make a point about something happening to one of her friends. In season six's feelings, which we talked about in episode seven, Blanche thinks Dorothy should just give lazy quarterback Kevin a passing grade because she knows what high school life is all about. Dorothy, why don't you pass the kid so he can play? I doubt if the Canterbury Tales is going to come up in a huddle. I agree, Dorothy. Saturday's game was a big one. And speaking as a former cheerleader and ex-bad girl in a health film, (laughs) I can tell you the importance of school-sanctioned extracurricular activities. Now, look, I want you both... It should come as no surprise that Rue McClanahan, who lived for performance, was a cheerleader herself. She wrote in her biography, My First Five Husbands and the Ones That Got Away that she was shocked and delighted to be elected cheerleader while attending middle school in Durant, Oklahoma. She said she didn't think she was cut out for it and described herself rather dismissively as a, quote, flat-chested cheerleading type. Doesn't appear this phase lasted too long for Rue, and she eventually focused more on singing, dancing, acting, and owning her own dance studio while still basically a teenager. In season three's Mother's Day, which we covered way back in episode two, we see a flashback to Blanche meeting her mother in a convalescence home. Despite her elderly mom recovering from some debilitating ailment, Blanche's favorite topic of conversation remains herself. Do you remember that Mother's Day that I almost ruined when I ran off to get married? (laughs) No. (laughs) Sure you do, honey. Don't you know I was a senior in high school and I was madly in love with Deck Bovinglow? We'd been dating for nearly a month, so it seemed perfectly logical when he dropped by cheerleading practice and asked me to marry him. (laughs) Oh, I thought he was a wonderful catch at the time. He was 40, out of work, (laughs) 
twice divorced, had three kids. But the real reason I wanted to marry him was because his oldest daughter was a rival of mine at cheerleading. And I figured if I married Deck, I'd be her mama. And I could kick her off the squad. Playing Big Mommy Elizabeth Hollingsworth in her only appearance on The Golden Girls was actress Helen Klebe, who is best known for her many years as moonshine-brewing spinster Mamie Baldwin on The Waltons. Born in 1907, Klebe performed on radio programs in the late 40s before making her way to TV in 1952. She worked on a ton of TV shows over the next 40 years, including Dragnet, Dennis the Menace, Gunsmoke, Simon and Simon, and Chips. She also popped up in a few movies like The Manchurian Candidate and Seven Days in May. And if you like the former and have never seen the latter, I highly recommend it. Helen Klebe's final role was, fittingly, in A Walton Easter, a 1997 TV movie. She was 90 years old when the movie aired. She passed away in 2003, just a few days short of her 97th birthday. And then there was The Triangle the season one episode we referenced in episode five. Here, Blanche is worried she's going to lose Dorothy as a friend because Dorothy's boyfriend hit on her, something that also happened to her during her cheering days. It's terrible. Dorothy will be heartbroken when you tell her. Oh, I'm not telling her anything. Well, she's your friend. You've got to tell her. Oh, no, I don't. The last time a friend's sweetheart made a pass at me, I lost my friend, Anderbo. Anderbo? That's right, Anderbo Johnson. Clyde Whitehead, Anderbo's beau, decided he wanted to see my cheerleader sweater from the inside. So when I told Anderbo, she blamed the whole thing on me. And then Clyde would never speak to me again for telling. I lost Anderbo, Anderbo. <laughs> now you understand why I can't tell Dorothy? I don't even understand who Anderbo Bo is. Cheerleading is obviously related to sports. Just check the sidelines of any football or basketball game from high school to the pros. Even hockey teams have had cheer squads. But is cheering a sport in itself? The short answer is yes, but the history of it is long and still evolving. Sideline cheering started in the late 19th century, but what's predominantly now a female sport only became available to ladies in the 1920s. Cheer squads were common for schools and some pro teams for years, but they broke through in a big way in the 1970s, when general manager Tex Schramm introduced America to the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. That squad crossed over in popularity so much that they became the default examples of what cheerleading was for the next 30-plus years. But things have changed recently. Cheerleading has splintered into two distinct factions. Sideline cheering still focuses on entertaining or riling up a crowd, yes, often with a degree of titillation. Meanwhile, competitive cheerleading is one of the fastest-growing women's sports across the globe and is currently petitioning to be included in an upcoming Olympics. Both require incredible amounts of strength, stamina, energy, and body coordination. And both can lead to the same injuries that athletes can get, like torn ACLs or even head trauma. Cheering competitions have taken on a life of their own within the last 15 years or so and now also allow for different paths. In all-star cheer... Independent teams not affiliated with schools gather at events like the National Cheerleading Association's All-Star National Championship and execute routines in the hopes of out-jumping, out-flipping, out-tumbling, out-climbing, and out-tossing each other for cash prizes, medals, and glory. This is no joke or bring-it-on movie. This is basically high-end gymnastics by a different name. 
Competitors can practice two or three days a week for three hours at a clip. Further instruction, uniforms, travel, and other expenses can run into tens of thousands of dollars. All-Star Cheer exists to give privately funded teams a chance to put their cheering skills to the test against the best. But schools have competitions too. Through the NCAA's Emerging Sport Initiative, the USA Federation for Sport Cheering set up STUNT, that's with all capital letters, as a sort of college cheerleading league. There are no crowds to rile up and no pom-poms. Instead, teams perform routines on the same floor at the same time. There are four quarters and points are scored after each to the team that executes the best. Stunt is open to high schools and colleges to meet athletics requirements, which has been sort of a bone of contention as the sport has grown. Stunt also gives cheering regular and postseasons and a defined set of rules, which it needs if it wants to get even bigger and play on the brightest stage of all. In 2016, cheer was given provisional status as an Olympic sport. The International Cheer Union, the sport's governing body with 4.5 million registered athletes, has three years to prove to the International Olympic Committee that cheering is, in fact, international enough to be considered for the game. And they have a solid case. Teams and federations from over 70 countries took part in the last World Cheerleading Championships, and the sport has reached Europe, South America, China, and Japan, among other places. Dorothy's experience in high school sounds very different than Blanche's, beyond just that whole getting pregnant at 19 thing. In Where's Charlie, the season 7 episode we talked about back in episode 6, we find out that Dorothy was sort of a cheerleader herself. She didn't wear a skirt or a letter, but she was definitely there on the sidelines showing true school spirit. Man just makes me feel so young, like I was back in high school again. Remember? Remember how you used to feel when your boyfriend was star of the football team? Oh, look who I'm talking to. <laughs> My Dorothy knew the star of the football team very well. In fact, she was the head cheerleader. Head cheerleader, listen to me. She was the mascot. <laughs> Put her in a bear suit with pom-poms. Do the growl, pussycat. Come on, do the growl. That's it. That's it. Now, it so happens I was their good luck charm. They won a lot of games with me in that suit. Sure, the other team was always afraid we'd send in the bear. God, you gave me a lot of laughs. Ma. That's it. Oh, stop it. Stop it. Everybody loves mascots whether it's a real animal or a person in a suit that turns them into a gorilla, a dragon, a chicken, or just a guy with a baseball for a head. But believe it or not, they're not just there to distract kids. The story of mascots starts in the French opera in the 1880s. La Mascotte was a play by Edmund Audrin about a local girl who functions as a farmer's personal good luck charm. Later that decade, Sporting Life magazine used Mascot in conjunction with a Boston baseball team that had experienced a recent run of luck. The word changed a couple of more times until it was shortened to what we know today and came to mean anyone or anything that seemed to be a lucky talisman for a team. A few references to mascots in the late 1800s referred to kids that would hang around a team and carry flags, signs, or other items for them. Animals started getting involved in 1892, when Bulldog Handsome Dan was named the official mascot at Yale. And he's still there, 
or at least his family is. The school just recently introduced a new handsome Dan, the 18th in the family line. It took a few decades, but humans got into the act thanks to Max Patkin, the legendary clown prince of baseball. A former player himself, Patkin joined the Navy and pitched against Joe DiMaggio in an exhibition game in Hawaii in 1944. Jolton Joe homered, and Patkin comically chased him around the bases. That started a second career for Patkin as he barnstormed parks across the country, dancing, flopping, goofing, and making funny faces to the delight of fans everywhere. He has a prominent role as himself in Bull Durham, which we talked about last season. And then came 1964, when the woeful New York Mets debuted their lovable ball-headed mascot, Mr. Met. Historians aren't sure which of Mr. Met or Ohio State's Brutus Buckeye were the first costume mascot, but I like Mr. Met more, so we'll go with him. But the guy that really kicked the door open for mascots with his giant yellow oversized foam foot was the San Diego Chicken. Originally conceived for ads for a local radio station, the Chicken was the alter ego of journalism student Ted Giannoulis. He started out handing out Easter eggs at the San Diego Zoo in 1974 and soon was dancing at Padres games and became a national icon thanks to appearances on the kids' show The Baseball Bunch. Giannoulis is still performing as the Chicken after 42 years, although his schedule these days is much lighter than it used to be. He has been called the Lawrence Olivier of mascots by Spy Magazine, which I'm sure the venerable stage and screen legend would truly appreciate. The San Diego Chicken's popularity gave way to later characters like the Philly Fanatic, St. Louis's Fred Bird, Billy the Marlin, and the Montreal Expo's Yuppie, who now works for the Montreal Canadiens following the Expo's move to Washington. Speaking of hockey teams, because I can't help it, Calgary's Harvey the Hound was the first NHL mascot introduced in 1983. In 2003, Harvey got into a little tete-a-tete with Edmonton Oilers coach Craig McTavish, who responded by sort of pulling Harvey's long tongue right out from his comically large mouth. It's very funny. You should look it up on YouTube. But wait a minute. What about Rose? Was she a cheerleader? Did she date a football player in high school? I have no clue. If she did, it's written in the show's non-existent Bible. But we do know she had a small part in St. Olaf High School Athletics, thanks to season two's Big Daddy's Little Lady. Uh, Miami retailers to sponsor songwriting contests? The Miami retailers are awarding $10,000 to the person who comes up with the best new song about the city of Miami. $10,000? That's right. I'm going to enter. You? Well, Dorothy, I happen to have written songs before. I wrote the fight song for our high school. Onward, St. Olaf, they still sing it. (laughs) Onward, St. Olaf, onward we go. Onward and onward, St. Olaf's go. Go, go, go. Go, go, go. Go, Rose, Rose, Rose. That's a... (laughs) Honey, it's a very catchy tune, but who wrote those lyrics? I did. And lyrics aren't even my strong point. I just got lucky that one time. That revelation leads to Dorothy and Rose entering a contest to write Miami a new tourism jingle. At first, their partnership has some struggles. I never had this trouble when I worked alone. No. When you worked alone, the only thing you could rhyme with go was go. <laughs> Although Russell Marcus wrote the script for Big Daddy's Little Lady, it was writer-producers Mort Nathan and Barry Fanaro that wrote the lyrics for Miami You've Got Style. 
The song didn't win the contest on the show, but it's an indelible part of Golden Girls lore and might be sung by an audience at the next Golden Girls trivia night you attend. Fight songs are an indelible part of college sports and are usually blasted before, after, and many times during games. A school's fight song usually has decades, if not centuries, of history behind it, and if you're an alum, you'll live and die by its rhythm. Michigan man Gerald Ford requested that the school's iconic The Victors be played at his funeral. The first fight song was Boston College's For Boston, which was written in 1888. Songs from that era, like the Victors, sound like military marches, which were popular at the time. Songs that came later, like On Wisconsin or the Notre Dame Victory March, have a more ragtime feel for the same reason. Some school songs have pretty interesting histories themselves. Former Louisiana Governor Huey P. Long helped write a fight song for LSU. After his assassination a year later, the school's band leader and its swim coach corroborated to write Fight for LSU to honor him. Anchors Away was written in 1906 for the Naval Academy football team and was eventually adopted as an anthem by that entire branch of the military. And Alabama's Boomer Sooner it's just a lyrical swap of Yale's Bula Bula. Why do schools have fight songs? The same reason the military does. To rally support and bring people together in loyalty. Learning the words and melody to your school's fight song is a rite of passage for both fans and players, and is sometimes mandatory if your coach makes it so. That's why they're generally simple and above all else, hummable. I went to St. John's University in Queens, New York. I have no idea what our fight song is. It might have helped if I had gone to a basketball game or two while I was there. Like everything else I know about college football, I learned about fight songs from my friend Rick through EA's NCAA football series of video games. A couple of times, he convinced me to play as a team just because he liked the school's song. After you've heard a tune after every touchdown or field goal, game after game for months on end, it really does become a point of pride and you want to hear it again and again. And hearing another team's fight song as they score on you can be rage-inducing. Maybe that was what Rose was going for when she wrote Onward St. Olaf. Or maybe not. Cheerleading, for better or worse, is television shorthand for popular, socially comfortable people, which is certainly one way to describe Blanche Devereux. It's a cliche, but like most cliches, it works for a reason. One of the things that make the Golden Girls interesting is how different each character was. It only makes sense that one would be a cheerleader, and that the others would kind of hate her for it. But hey, Blanche didn't write a great jingle for the Miami Tourism Board, so it all evens out in the end. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we'll go toe-to-toe with Beatrice Arthur, an intimidating screen presence with a sensitive soul and one of the most remarkable acting careers ever.
Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening. <laughs>